Hi, welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with me today is Claire Finkelstein, and she is the founder and director of the Center for Ethics and the Rule of Law at the University of Pennsylvania's Cary Law School. And that's something I'm a fan of, ethics and law. Uh, <laughs> Claire, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Brian. Well, when we get back with her, we're going to talk about the, the new Department of Justice, the problems left over from the Trump Department of Justice, and of course, everyone's favorite topic, impeachment. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I'm your host, Brian Karam, and with me today is Claire Finkelstein, and she's the founder of the Center for Ethics, the Rule of Law at the University of Pennsylvania's Cary Law School. And Claire, since the uh, title of the show is Just Ask the Question, I'm going to just ask you the question. Um, has Donald Trump irreparably harmed the Department of Justice? Brian, he's done an awful lot of damage to the Department of Justice, assisted by Attorney Gen former Attorney General Bill Barr. Uh, but I am hopeful that that damage can be undone and that the Justice Department can be preserved. One of the things that you have to understand from the 40,000-foot perspective is that when you use the law to distort the law, that does almost more damage than anything else because those legal precedents and practices remain. And so right. you have to work very actively to try to undo the damage that happens when you start messing around with the rule of law. And the rule of law, of course, goes to the heart of our democracy. It really establishes- Well, give me uh, an example, if you can. One, one example of where you think they use law to distort law so people can understand what you're talking about. Give me a good so concrete example. One of the most obvious areas in which the Justice Department was really the handmaiden to Donald Trump's attempt to hang on to power had to do with the use of the department for prosecutions, uh, investigations, and getting back at Donald Trump's political enemies. So everyone knew that under Bill Barr, with the support of Donald Trump and the encouragement of Donald Trump, if you were on the bad side of the president, and most importantly, if you posed a risk to the president because you knew too much about what he was doing or what he had done uh, to try to stay in power or, or crimes relating to his campaign, that you were not gonna receive favorable treatment from the Justice Department, and then you might in effect be punished for that. Michael Cohen, um, for example. So we saw that with Michael Cohen, and uh, pretty shocking that Michael Cohen would actually be uh, have his parole revoked and, and put back into prison so that he, uh, because he wanted to publish a book about his experiences. 
And then there were people like Roger Stone. Now, Roger Stone is someone who posed an enormous risk to the president. Uh, he could have told an enormous amount about what he knew about the president's attempt to uh, subvert justice and uh, contact with the Russians. After all, he was the go-between with WikiLeaks, uh, so he knew a lot about what happened in the 2016 campaign. Um, but basically, Donald Trump bought his silence, and the price of that was uh, at first that he had his sentence commuted, and then uh, later he actually received a pardon. So uh, that's an example of how when the Justice Department is used, uh, just as we see in uh, despotisms around the world to reward friends and punish enemies, it breaks down justice, it destroys faith in the objectivity of, of justice, and you cannot trust uh, to the legality and impartial enforcement of the laws under a department like that. You know, and what you say, though, really points out, I, I often thought that, and I've interviewed a lot of people who said, look, we could survive one four-year term for Donald Trump. Two might have been, you know, we may not have survived as a country. So we're out of the Donald Trump era uh, ostensibly at this point. He's gone. But it's what you mentioned about despotism around the world. It seems to me that the stain that he left, the greater threat is internationally with people who will either uh, mimic what he did or can then turn around and look at the United States and go, why should I listen to you? Look what you had in, in your backyard. Well, and we had that after the Bush White House. So the torture program- White House, why is it always Republicans? I don't know, <laughs> I'm not going so, there. <laughs> yeah, and, and the Bush White House had an enormous problem because of the way it handled the war on terror and because of the torture program. And famously we had memos written by lawyers in the Office of Legal Counsel justifying torture, which the Justice Department later revoked, um, that were an embarrassment from the standpoint of justice, both inside the country and uh, beyond our borders. And indeed, the torture program was really a boon to our enemies because right. Al-Qaeda and ISIS used it to recruit. It did a lot to, to fan the flames of anti-American sentiment uh, in the Middle East. And uh, it did just the opposite of what we wanted it to do. Namely, it did not make us more secure. Uh, it made us at greater risk, it put us at greater risk. And restoring the Justice Department and trying to depoliticize the Justice Department after uh, the damage that the Office of Legal Counsel did in the wake of 9-11, uh, was a difficult task, and I must say, one that wasn't fully accomplished. Uh, under Obama, you mean? Under Obama, that's right. And so one has to look at the Justice Department under Donald Trump and realize that it didn't just start with Donald Trump. No, right? no. This has been going on for a little while. Uh, there has been a politicization of the Justice Department over the course of many years, as we've seen an increase in presidential power, an increase in executive authority, and a sort of loss of those norms that were so well anchored before, uh, which was to, to have prosecutorial decisions and to have the Justice Department functioning be quite independent of the White House 
despite the fact that the attorney general is appointed by the president and serves at his pleasure. Prior to Trump, were the problems that we had more on the international scene or was there uh, distortions of the Department of Justice that hurt us? Because like you said, it didn't start with Trump, but were most of the problems uh, on the international scene or were, there, uh, were they also internally in the United States? I would say they were more focused on the international scene, but any kind of distortion of justice, even with regard to international matters, is ultimately going to uh, tear at the fabric of justice within the country. Uh, and yeah, of course, we had the famous- I understand that, but my, my, my question about it is, Donald Trump was very blunt in, in what he did and very, I mean, bull in the china shop. I mean, he had Bill Barr take the Mueller report and preempt it with his own interpretation, subverting justice internally in such a dramatic fashion that no other president has done prior. I mean, Nixon didn't even try that. Uh, he, he wisely quit before they could, could impeach him. And, and uh, if he had known he, all he had to do was deny everything, he may have stayed in office. But Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. It was a, a really a role of first impression for the attorney general. We are not used to seeing attorney generals right. behave in that corrupt a fashion. And as uh, Andrew Weissman, for example, makes clear, uh, who was on the Mueller team, um, you know, Mueller fully and the entire Mueller team fully expected that what Bill Barr would release was their prepared summaries of the Mueller report. That's what they were expecting. They had prepared brief summaries. I believe there was even an understanding with Attorney General Barr that that's what would be released. And instead, he hijacked the rollout, ignored the summaries that that team had prepared, uh, the, the, then released his own PR around the report that was incredibly misleading. Um, and in effect, it wasn't even, I mean, it was it a lie. Blatant lie. I read the entire Mueller report three times. And I mean, it is pretty damning about what Donald Trump did. And it, the fact that he wasn't impeached and thrown out on that, on the Mueller report, is, is you know, I just, I, I can't believe he, he was, he got away with it. Well, and what Robert Mueller said in that report was that from a technical legal standpoint, there was not enough evidence of a conspiracy with Russia um, to press charges or to suggest criminal activity on the part of the Trump campaign. However, the second half of the report was very clear about obstruction of justice. Ten cases. 10 counts of obstruction of justice. And he, he spells them out. And while he didn't, and, and, and again, having read the report, and God, I, you know, that it, it wasn't that, that Trump purposely conspired with the Russians. He was so damn dumb that the Russians tossed stuff his way. And he didn't really even know that it was Russia doing it. You know, some of the Facebook stuff that he retweeted. So it, so they were trying to connect with him. He just never made the connection. But the obstruction of justice is pretty damn clear. Well, and, and, and what Mueller really suggested in that second half of the report was, Congress, if this were anybody but the president, I could go ahead and bring and an indictment. indictment. But I am bound by uh, DOJ's advisory memos suggesting that a sitting president cannot be indicted. Do you agree with and, that? 
I do not agree with that. And I've, I've written a number of op-eds about that uh, in which I argue that, look, those memos, there are two memos, uh, one that was written in the Clinton era and the other that was written in the Nixon era saying that a sitting president should not be indicted. Those memos are utterly pragmatic. They are clear that the reason not to indict a sitting president is not that the constitution forbids it. Yeah. But the reason that you can't indict a sitting president is only Justice Department guidance that it would distract the president from his duties. And that's not a constitutional matter. There are some presidents, and I firmly believe that Donald Trump was one of them, for whom distracting them from their duties is not the worst thing in the world. Indeed, what was he doing no, all the time? I'm happy that he was golfing. <laughs> exactly. Might have taken a little time out of his golf game. Yeah. Um, and uh, indeed, Scalia wrote at the time uh, that the Clinton matter was being questioned and whether or not uh, Clinton should have to respond to a deposition uh, involving um, yeah. uh, the Paula Jones case, um, that, um, uh, if, uh, that it may distract the president from uh, his golf game, but when he literally has no time to play golf anymore, then asking him to respond to a deposition right. uh, might be too burdensome. But um, Scalia recognized that in most cases, it is not too burdensome to have the president respond to uh, a, a subpoena, uh, a deposition, a request for testimony, or what have you, and that he has loyal lawyers to handle that matter. Now, in the case of President Trump, the reason it's so critical to be able to prosecute a sitting president and not to have a complete bar to that is that if you allow a sitting president to commit crimes while in office, they will commit yet more crimes to remain in office. Yeah. Because what's the first thing that happens? They need to stay in office because if they get out of office, then they can get prosecuted. So it's a perfect setup to induce a president to commit crimes while in office for the very purpose of remaining in office if what you say is a sitting president can't be indicted. Well, that brings me to the, the, to the whole point of he's been impeached now twice. And it just seems like in the United States, there are two sets of laws, those for you and I and those for a president. We loathe to, it seems like we, no matter what this guy does, what crime he commits, they're not going to, they're not going to convict him in the Senate. I'm, I'm assuming that the state of New York might not be so uh, uh, forgiving and that he might face charges from the Southern District of New York. And he may face charges in Georgia, I understand, for some of the things that he's done there. But why, in the name of God, do we not convict this guy? What is wrong with our system if we're allowing him to get away with these crimes? What does it tell the rest of the world? What does it tell uh, the citizens of the U.S.? Right. So what we know about what happened in the Senate is that 44 senators voted to not hold in the impeachment trial uh, in the case 45, of Donald Trump. I believe it was, but yeah, f uh, may have been 44, but right. Uh, excuse me, 45, 45 yeah. senators voted not to hold the impeachment trial on the grounds that it's unconstitutional. 
that was their view. In fact, there's every reason to think it is constitutional uh, to conduct an impeachment trial for a president who's no longer in office. Um, but, but that tells you how they're gonna vote on the outcome. So it seems highly unlikely that those, any of those 45 uh, senators is gonna turn around and suddenly vote for conviction. Um, and it is deeply concerning. Like basically there are three ways to keep a sitting president uh, in check. One is impeachment. The second is possible prosecution. And uh, the third is voting him out of office. And out of the three, if you think about it, um, of course, Donald Trump was eventually voted out of office, but there was a big risk that his own crimes would prevent voters from being able to vote him out of office. Yeah, he tried right. to damn this, didn't he? Even, even mm -hmm. sponsoring insurrection in the Capitol. Well, that's right. So he sort of, you know, tried to get everyone, including the Georgia Secretary of State, to um, cook the books on how we count the votes and to and to turn around and find, as he instructed him, over eleven thousand new votes to to throw the election to Donald Trump after the fact. Now, if so, you can't rely on just the third means of accountability. You can't just rely on elections. Or a last resort, though, and it worked. And it worked, but it might not have. And it might not have for the very reason that shows us that we need robust impeachment procedures and we need the possibility of indictment and criminal investigation. Otherwise, a sitting president has every motive to violate the law in order to distort elections and make sure that he can remain in office. So, all right, so the, the, the question I'm gonna leave you with before we go to break, uh, is our Republic sound? I believe that we've been tested by fire in the last four years. <laughs> I, um, I we've been tested by nuclear conflagration, but- Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and that we found a lot of robustness uh, in our republic, what have been the institutions that have saved us? I believe that the federal courts have been uh, a very powerful set of guardrails uh, that have protected the rule of law and protected our democracy. Ultimately, even it's important to note, Republican judges who were appointed by Donald yeah. Trump. Yeah. Uh, they are trained in the law. They are trained in the rule of law. I think anyone with legal training at least has some additional sensitivity to the concept of the rule of law. Not everyone, but most and, people And the do. sensitivity isn't the same with everyone, but yeah, I, I agree that there are, there are certain norms. Look, uh, I tried to get, I had to sue Donald Trump to keep my press pass. And there were- right there were uh, uh, judges appointed by Donald Trump who could have easily thrown me under the bus and did not. They voted uh, rightly, I believe, with the rule of law there. But So right. federal judges we've got, the second thing is the press, right? The, you guys have been our heroes. You have been absolutely stalwart in, in doing your best to um, get the reports out there, stick to the truth. Uh, and risking your lives in many cases uh, to, to give us the kind of transparency that a democracy depends on. And the third institution I would identify as having played a, a positive role, though not at every moment, um, is the military. 
I think the yeah. understanding of the concept of the rule of law in the military is fairly robust. Uh, indeed, sometimes I wish civilian lawyers had the training that uh, military lawyers end up getting once they graduate from law school and they get into the military. They get a robust training on the concept of the rule of law and they take an oath not to defend the country. Their oath is to defend the constitution. And I believe that most members of the military take that seriously. I take that seriously. I take the first amendment very seriously. And I, I like to see people who uh, adhere to the rule of law and not to the rule of the mob. But what we saw from Donald Trump on January 6th was an attempt of the rule of mob to subvert the rule of law, right? Yes, and unfortunately, the military does seem to have a problem with right-wing extremism that it's going to have to address. The country does. It's not and just there were... It's police, it's the press. Well, that's right. Lawyers, it's judges. It, uh, there, that that it seeps in all up and down out through all strata. Of, of society. And I think that from this is just my opinion, but I think a lot of that is due to the fact that we don't have the fairness doctrine anymore. And you have siloed information systems delivering uh, propaganda to people and they never turn a channel. Um, so I, I throw a lot of that on the press. When we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit more about the DOJ and where you think we go under uh, Biden and the hopes you have. So stick around, folks. We'll be right back. This is Just Ask the Question. I'm your host, Brian Karam. Well, time to pay the bills, folks. And this one I, I don't mind doing. If <laughs> Actually, I've actually used this. If this 2020 holiday season feels like it's been a long time, come and make it worth the wait with Omaha Steaks. Omaha Steaks makes the perfect gift for family and friends or to treat yourself. All shipped directly to your door. They offer everything you need to bring families together for a delicious holiday feast. Okay, or maybe not, maybe just a delicious festival. Uh, their deluxe grillers assortment package includes a variety of entrees, sides, and desserts. Right now, you can get this mouth-watering package. I, I've never actually seen a mouth water. Oh, well, anyway, plus four free burgers and a free digital meat thermometer. And we all need a good meat thermometer. An exclusive price only available to uh, our listeners. So go to omahasteaks.com and enter the code question into the search bar. Get a jump on gift shopping with Omaha Steaks. You know, Omaha Steaks isn't just a steak. It, it's actually a, a lot of them. It's a fantastic gift and a safe way to share the joy of the season with Omaha Steaks. Guaranteed quality and safety with every order. Order the Deluxe Grillers Assortment Package today, and you'll receive four free Omaha Steak Burgers and a free digital meat thermometer. That's just a great straight line I won't use. When you go to omahasteaks.com and type question in the search bar, that's omahasteaks.com and type question. And if you need to spell it, it's Q-U-E-S-T-I-O-N in the search bar. And you'll shop for the best gourmet gifts of the season I, I like a good raw steak, so uh, enjoy it. It is a lot of fun. Hi, we're back. It's Just Asked the Question. I am your host, Brian Cameron. With us is Claire uh, Finkelstein. And Claire, of course, we're talking about the rule of law, the Department of Justice, impeachment, all the fun stuff. So <laughs> let's go with going forward. Donald Trump is gone. Joe Biden is our president. He has passed a lot of executive orders. 
and he's looking to rebuild the Department of Justice. But one of the things he did was keep uh, the head of the FBI from the Trump era. Uh, do you think, A, that's uh, a wise decision? Well, at the moment, we'll see what he ends up doing. But um, of course, uh, there was a lot of resistance within the FBI to the pressure that Donald Trump was putting on them and uh, resistance within the intelligence community overall. One of the biggest things that needs to be addressed is the relationship between the intelligence community and the White House. And here we saw a White well, House- was not during Trump, he just ignored them. Well, worse than ignored them, of course, there were, there were counter investigations that took place yes. Uh, that Bill Barr really spearheaded or spearheaded in conjunction with Donald Trump uh, to intimidate Obama-era um, intelligence officials as well as current intelligence officials. And what's really frightening about it is it looks as though the various investigations that Bill Barr was um, putting into motion, for example, uh, John Durham, that these counter-investigations were coordinated um, with three different Senate investigations that were taking place. So one of the things that we rely on in a democracy is separation of powers and checks and balances. But this was really the first time uh, that we saw Congress almost completely unable to function, or at least the Senate completely unable to function as a check and balance on the executive branch because you had um, more party loyalty than you did loyalty to the branch that you, to the institution that you were a part of. Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, right. with liberty and justice for all. That part of it, they just forgot. They forgot. So we saw Bill Barr potentially coordinating these spurious investigations, uh, the main purpose of which was intimidation. Thank God John Durham was a man apparently of some character who at the very end said, you know what, these investigations are not gonna be ready by the election and Bill Barr had to announce that. Uh, we know there was a lot of disappointment on Barr's part and on the president's part that Durham didn't deliver the goods for him. I think the hope had been that Durham was gonna pronounce the origins of the Russia investigation, right. a hoax as Donald Trump had been saying and a really cast doubt on the concerns that the intelligence community had, had obviously had and the investigations that took place and uh, Robert Mueller's investigations um, to say, you know what, we've been victimized uh, by former Obama officials and, uh, and by the intelligence community more generally. That kind of wielding a counter investigation like, like that as a weapon and trying to use it to win an election is the essence of corrupt government and the essence of, of corruption in our uh, justice department. And that is that did damage that's gonna take a little while to, to undo. And we need reforms to, to try to guard against it. So what type of reforms and what would you do to guard against, fire the people who were involved? Is that enough or? Should I think you need to look more structurally. So just after the Nixon era, we saw a similar type of reform um, conducted by Edward Levy um, who, uh, and Griffin Bell. Uh, and they came up with a, a series of reforms um, 
that were designed to, to sort of put the ethics back in, and the impartiality back into the Justice Department. And some of the reforms they came up with are actually still with us today. They were designed to- well, they didn't work, did they? <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't fully work, no. But, but it's the kind of initiative that, um, that we need to see again. So what are the sorts of reforms that we need? Well, let's start with inspectors general. Right. They're supposed to, to provide some guardrails on a runaway agency, such as occurred with the Justice Department. But in fact, we saw um, inspector general after inspector general live, either being fired or forced out or slandered, um, uh, the yeah. reports not believed. So one of the things that we're going to need is, is to really look at the protections for inspectors general and make sure that they're able to function independently and without political influence, try to minimize political influence on their investigations. Um, within the Justice Department, and I think this has been a, a problem for a long time, we talked about the Office of Legal Counsel. That's been a highly, highly politicized office for many right. years. And I, I cannot even well, say that- How do you take, the, how do you take the, uh, the politics out of that? How do you, do you just guarantee the inspector generals can't be canned or do you- You can't, right. well, with inspectors general, yes. You can put some um, precautions in against um, their firing. There's some recent um, Supreme Court jurisprudence that, um, that may make that difficult, but you want- um, possible um, appointment of inspectors general by Congress, or at least that they can only be fired for cause. That's what you really want. So well, they can't be fired yeah, merrily, right. Yeah. So I, um, I, and, and then there are norms about communication between the White House and the attorney general regarding um, prosecutions well, he, and investigations. Yeah, he used the AG as his personal attorney. Well, that's through. right. But the tradition always was that, in fact, the AG does not communicate with the president about pending investigations. Ever, yeah. It was considered highly improper to do that once upon a time. And here we saw an AG who was really functioning um, as the right-hand man, the personal attorney, the fixer for right. Donald Trump, who would order any kind of investigation, um, even just the appearance of uh, an investigation as some of these US attorney investigations were, the counter investigations, in order to boost uh, Donald Trump's reelection bid. So let's, uh, let's, let's put Donald Trump behind us because God knows I've had four years of having to deal with him. And, and let's, let's, I mean, we could spend all night talking about why you should be prosecuted, but the Department of Justice now with the new attorney general, tell me, uh, we have what an acting attorney general, right, Monty Wilkinson? Um, right. Uh, so, what? Where do you think? What do you think of him? And what do you think of where we're going? What's the first thing that has to be done in the DOJ? Where would you like to see the DOJ after a hundred days in the new Biden administration? Where would should they be? Well, the first thing is that I think um, Merrick Garland is going to be an excellent attorney general. I yes. think he's really going to privilege civil rights and, and civil liberties. And, I'm sorry, and, I, meant, I, I meant to say that, you know, Merrick will, is taking over, but Monty was serving, right? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I think he's going to be an excellent uh, AG. I think he's, uh, I hope that he will look at some of these more systemic 
issues. Uh, some of the things that we recommended in a report that we did um, on the um, Bill Barr Justice Department uh, suggested, first of all, strengthening the independence of special counsel. That would be a really important thing for, for Biden to do. And, and Biden can't, can't really do that in a more systemic way alone. Congress needs to pass the uh, independent counsel, special your, counsel law. What did Merrick Garland do in his first 100 days? Well, Merrick Garland, of course, can encourage that. Um, and he can strongly encourage the president to um, appoint an independent prosecutor to, to look at what happened in the last four years, what some of the problems were, so that we can start to to address that. I think that's, that's some, Merrick Garland cannot conduct prosecutions of Donald Trump or anyone in his entourage uh, without appearing uh, far too partisan. And so it's really gonna have to be an independent counsel that conducts those uh, investigations. And I think that that ought to happen. So you think within the first 100 days, Merrick Garland ought to appoint a special prosecutor? Absolutely. And probably it's gonna take multiple special prosecutors. <laughs> uh, as George Conway has suggested, I think I think he's absolutely right about that because the magnitude of the subjects for investigation is just too enormous. Um, a second thing is is try to make our U.S. attorneys more independent. We saw the that Jeffrey Berman in New York was forced out. Well, uh, you know, guess what? The U.S. attorney in New York had an awful lot to investigate about. Uh, Donald Trump and his campaign and his foundation and his finances, his relation, possible relationship with Jeffrey Epstein and um, more and more and more. And so um, there was an enormous amount that Jeffrey Epstein, uh, excuse me, that Jeffrey Berman was looking into uh, yes, that was threatening to Donald Trump. And lo and behold, he ends up fired. Right. So in the first 100 days, you think Merrick Garland's going to have to appoint some special prosecutors, right? So that will take, but what does he have to do to clean up the internal mess? Right. So then I think there needs to be staggered. We recommended staggered 10-year terms for U.S. attorneys um, to help bolster their independence um, so that they have more robust defenses against this kind of politicization. And one could recommend the same thing for the inspectors general. And, and in that case, as I suggested before, make them removable only for cause. Um, I would also try to strengthen the independence of career DOJ attorneys in all departments, including the Office of Legal Counsel, be really important. And that's partly a matter of tone, um, but we need to try to restore honor in the Department of Justice and, and restore a sense of uh, fidelity to the law so that if a member of the Office of Legal Counsel says, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to say the, the thing you're contemplating, Mr. President, is not legal, that should be a showstopper. Right. <laughs> or that should at least be, um, you know, an opinion that's taken extremely seriously, but we have uh, our committee talked to people who were sent packing when they suggested that and were told to rewrite their opinions. That can't be allowed to happen in a well-functioning democracy. What about anyone for, left over from the Trump era that was a Trump supporter? How do you fumigate a room and get rid of, I mean, you can't just 
indiscriminately pick on someone because you don't like them. But how do you excise the cancer? Well, first of all, the attorney general uh, working with the White House has absolutely the right to appoint um, his own attorneys sure. uh, in that office. And court staff and the, some of those people that, you know, may not necessarily rise above, you know, they're, they're uh, you may not necessarily see them every day or even know who they are, but they're still there. You know, the career staffers. Exactly. Well, uh, career staffers, a lot of them left in the in the Trump era, yeah. um, because <laughs> I, know I mean, <laughs> and even and even Trump appointed um, attorneys left in protest uh, because the pressure was enormous. This pressure involved in speaking out was enormous. Um, so there's been a a sort of you know ethos of politicization there that's been really really extreme. Um, but there are other things, and a lot of them are things that Congress can do. I mean, Congress has significant oversight through its budgetary process. So Congress needs to uh, use that process vigorously, <coughs> excuse me, to engage in oversight of the Justice Department and to require regular testimony from the Attorney General and reporting. I mean, Bill Barr kept promising to come in and testify to Congress, and it was very rare that he did. Um, there were regular invitations to bring him in. He kept saying he would, and then in the end, he would not testify. Finally, he did at, towards the very end of his term, uh, and it was a, a terribly defensive encounter. There has to be a, a, a regular norm of the attorney general testifying before Congress on a, on a regular basis about initiatives, plans, investigations, to the extent they can be discussed um, with members of Congress and so that the public understands what's going on. Is Merrick Garland the right guy? Can he do this? I think, well, I certainly feel very confident that he's the right guy as far as civil rights, civil liberties, and really looking at the sort of uh, racism in our law enforcement community. And I think that's what Joe Biden was particularly looking for in him. My question is, what is his appetite going to be for looking at the crimes of the past? What is his appetite going to be for appointing a special prosecutor if Congress does not reenact the special prosecutor law. I mean, that'll be up to, to Joe Biden, but he's certainly not gonna do it if Merrick Garland is not on board. Um, and you know, the worry is, and we've seen these arguments about the impeachment, that <clears throat> why, why be mired in the past, right? Isn't it a waste of time? Shouldn't we just move forward with our agenda? Don't we just divide the country more when we spend our time investigating the crimes of the past? And I think the answer to that is no. Uh, you cannot unify the country until there is some kind of process of coming clean with what's happened in the past. Well, I, I think you can't come clean with the guy. I, I, this is what kills me when we talk about this issue. And it's not what you're saying, but it's the idea that we have to come together with a criminal. I mean, I worked for America's Most Wanted, the same excuse I would hear from, you know, from murderers. Well, let's just all be friends now. You know, that's in the past. Well, no, you, you, you need to be prosecuted. You need to be charged, prosecuted, and tried. Now, 
I'm not going to be judge, jury, and executioner and say you should fry, but I think you should be charged for your crimes, held accountable for your crimes. If you beat the rap, you beat the rap. That's that's the way the justice system works. If you can beat the system, mazel tov. But the fact that you won't even bring someone to trial for what was done, and, and clearly on January 6th, among any other day, I was there. That was horrendous. Those people had blood on their mouth. They were foaming at the um, and and you know foaming at the mouth. And it was Donald Trump who sent them on their way. Him, Rudy Giuliani, and one of his interchangeable sons who was up there preaching. I you know they're Tweedledee and Tweedle stupid. But you know it, it got Giuliani going uh, uh, trial by combat. And, you know, and the son go and fight and Donald Trump go and fight. They went up there to that Capitol, believing that the president wanted them to do that. How do you make amends with that? I, I think the only way to do it is to hold them accountable for their crime. And it's I think it's criminal to have members of Congress go and let's forget about it and move forward. Hell, their lives were on the line, too, unless they were involved in the conspiracy. That's <laughs> And, in that right, case and you're absolutely right, you see. And, and the problem is we've set it up this way that we've allowed the presidency to become so dominant and so strong and Imperative. Congress has really abdicated its responsibility of oversight over the years, progressively over the years with the result that we cannot stop a president in his tracks while he's doing it. Hell, we, we can't then- stop him after he's gone. Right. So, I mean, just remember in the Trump v. Vance case, in the Second Circuit, Donald Trump's lawyers actually got up there and said, if the president were to shoot someone on Fifth Avenue, there would be nothing you could do. You could not arrest him. You could not stop him. I mean, in philosophy, we call that a reductio ad absurdum of a position. Right? You know that you've gone wrong if that's the conclusion that you reach. But if we set it up that you can't stop a president from committing crimes while he's in office, we are forced to have after the fact accountability. And then to argue, well, we shouldn't now engage in accountability because it's after the fact. You're right. <laughs> just opens us up as you know, a sort of democracy sitting ducks here. Um, to a president who be more effective if you than Donald indict, Trump. If you can't indict him when he's in the office and you can't hold him accountable all after the fact, what the hell use is a law? What, where, where are we as a country? That's right. And, and look what's happened with impeachment, right? Well, the, the argument that's often made is prosecution is not for presidents. The way we hold presidents accountable is through impeachment. But look what's happened to impeachment, right? We had a a majority of the Senate decide not to hear witnesses. And why did they decide not to hear witnesses? Well, the Trump administration- They they would condemn him. (laughs) Was blocking all the witnesses, right? Was telling, had been saying to witnesses who were called by the House, Basically, I forbid you, Donald, I, Donald Trump, forbid you from going to testify before Congress. So I go back to the second half of the Mueller report. That's obstruction of justice at work. If you cannot prosecute presidents for obstruction of justice, you 
open yourself to a president that can take over power and obstruct any attempts at accountability by any means at all. And all three of the methods of accountability, impeachment, uh, indictment, and election being thrown out of office by the voting population, those methods of accountability are all potentially corruptible by a president who's willing to violate the law. As this one clearly was. So I, I'm not a constitutional scholar. I have read the constitution many times. I have studied it. I do not have a constitutional law degree as some of my friends, you know, there's like Jamie Raskin and Mark Zaid and some of those people I respect who were constitutional attorneys. However, it seems to me that the presidency from my, you know, layman's knowledge is not the presidency that the framers of the constitution had in mind. What we're looking at, it appears to me, is an imperial presidency, one where you cannot go after him while he's in office and you cannot go after him after he's out of office. And if he has no ethics, and that would be your, your bailiwick ethics, if he has no ethics, we are doomed as a nation. If a smarter despot gets into power, someone who's more who's as corrupt, but a little more conniving and a little more uh, charming than Donald Trump. Well, right. So President Hawley, for example. Uh, oh, now, he always gets picked last for kickball. That guy's never going to be president. <laughs> or, or President Cruz. Um, uh, I, I don't know what I'm worried about is President Pompeo. Or President Pompeo, right? That's and, the and one I, I would filed, be worried about right now. And Richard Painter and I filed a Hatch Act complaint um, against him uh, because Mike Pompeo was totally willing to use his office as Secretary of State to try to boost the reelection chances of Donald Trump. And he stood there in Jerusalem, uh, in Jerusalem on a foreign trip paid for by taxpayers broadcasting into the RNC. Um, so there was not only a willingness to violate the law there, um, but there was a brazenness about it where members of this cabinet were just absolutely um, indifferent to whether or not they were they were violating federal law. Um, and we saw that, you know, sort of the, the entire administration was a walking hatch act violation. Um, Look, but we saw that day. to an extraordinary degree. Yeah, on any given day, Kellyanne Conway, uh, Kaylee McEnany, uh, Stephen Mill, all of them committed had you had Kaylee McEnany press he, she had the audacity to show up in the White House and say uh ask that question of the campaign then she showed up representing the campaign said ask the question of the White House I mean well that's right and so and so there was a reliance oh, what was she <laughs> we have relied on the softer norms of government to to keep us um, on the straight and narrow, and those softer norms are not working anymore. Integrity is what, it, look, all of this fails without personal integrity, right? Well, and, and we've got to start actually putting harder norms in place. So we're going to have to not be so subject to the personal integrity of whoever happens to be occupying the office. If you place no guardrails on the presidency and no limits and have no built-in form of accountability, um, then you are entirely reliant on the integrity of the person occupying the Oval Office. 
And um, since Donald Trump has no personal integrity, we're screwed. They're screwed, <laughs> right. So, so what you really want is for Congress to start looking at ways that it can take back some of, of the power that it's progressively given up since Arthur Schlesinger wrote that book, The Imperial Presidency that you referred to. Uh, and we, we have just seen that um, Congress has progressively abandoned its ability to counter someone in the Oval Office who is not respecting its authority. Its subpoenas have been weakened. It can't enforce them. It needs to do some hard thinking about how to restore its own authority and so that it can provide the, the check and the balance that it was always intended to be. This is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Kerman. With me is Clara Finkelstein, and we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Omaha Steaks makes the perfect gift for family and friends or to treat yourself. All shipped directly to your door. They offer everything you need to bring families together for a delicious holiday feast. When you go to omahasteaks.com and type question in the search bar, that's omahasteaks.com and type question. And if you need to spell it, it's Q-U-E-S-T-I-O-N in the search bar. And you'll shop for the best gourmet gifts of the season. I, I like a good raw steak, so uh, enjoy it. It is a lot of fun. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, J-A-T-Q podcast, for all the updates your little heart could desire. That's J-A-T-Q podcast. Again, that's at J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, and we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karen. With me is Clara Finkelstein, and she is uh, the founder. I like that part, the founder at the Pennsylvania School of Law for Ethics. I really do like that. The, the idea of ethics and responsibility, what a concept. Uh, and Claire, I appreciate you being here today, and it's been an enlightening conversation. A couple of final thoughts I guess I want to go over is, uh, where do you see, where would you like to see us four years from now at the next presidential election? What should we have concretely, should we have in place uh, that we don't have now in the Justice Department? So we already talked about uh, Congress passing this special prosecutor law to to uh, and that should be an office that has robust independence, uh, that is not dependent on executive authority. It should not be possible for a Nixon-like Saturday night massacre to occur where um, the president can fire the special counsel. Um, that, that has to be a very difficult thing to do. So that's, that'd be number one on my list as far as uh, restoring independence. Um, then I'd like to see some built-in uh, independence for U.S. attorneys and built-in independence for inspectors general, as we already talked about. Um, I'd like to see um, a greater role on the part of Congress in vigorously looking into what's going on in the Justice Department and more separation between the attorney general and the White House. And there are ways that, that Congress could try to institutionalize that. Um, there's a theory called the theory of the unitary executive. And that has been the kind of reigning theory among constitutional scholars for a long time about the power of the president to remove 
any executive branch official at will, there ought to be a clear understanding that if the reason that the president is removing an executive branch official is that he's trying to cover up his own misdeeds, right? Right. Or he's granting to, to look at another power that's even more constitutionally anchored, the pardon power, right? If the president is issuing a pardon because he's taking bribes, <laughs> well, it ought to be clear that that's an illegitimate use of presidential power. And Congress needs to make that clear by filling in some of the constitutional principles that would otherwise be left to the courts with some legislation around these matters. So you would not believe in the unitary executive theory. You think you need to curb the executive's power. Well, that's right. I think that unitary executive was a plausible theory when it was limited to the hypothesis that under normal circumstances, the president can remove executive branch officials at will. But again, if he's doing it corruptly, if he's doing it to save his own bacon or to cover up his own crimes, that's when there, it ought to be clear in the obstruction laws uh, that a president's power of removal is limited and can be interpreted as limited constitutionally under Article Two as limited by generally applicable federal criminal law. That seems rather difficult to do because first you have to prove criminal intent, and if you're not going to indict, if you can't investigate, how do you, how do you do that? Well, right? in Donald Trump's case, it was really easy because he always told us while he, <laughs> why he was doing what he did. Right? I mean, when he when he fired James Comey, yeah. he just said right out there, you know, I got rid of the problem. No more yeah. Russia investigation. <laughs> I so he conveniently that. confessed all his crimes. I'm more concerned about the 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 corruption that is less um, transparent than than Donald Trump's. Um, even so, as transparent as he was, there was nothing done about it. So I, I I see where you're going with that. But how do you institutionalize curbing the power of the president based on corruption if you can't really investigate him, I mean, if you can't indict a sitting president. The most important thing is that the Justice Department needs to rescind those two memos. They ah. are faulty, they are faulty documents. Um, ah. First of all, they are, they are badly misunderstood because they suggest- and The documents you're talking about are, for those- the two, the two memos that suggest that a sitting president can't be indicted. Now, I believe they we have every reason by. to do that now. So the off, those were put out by the Office of Legal Counsel once in the Clinton era and once in the Nixon era. And we have every reason after the Trump v. Vance case in which the Supreme Court basically unanimously said, guess what, a sitting president is subject to investigation and that strongly suggests that a sitting president is also subject to indictment. I don't know why you can't just come out and go, look, you can be indicted, get over yourself. I'd well, like it hasn't arisen, that. right. It hasn't arisen in that form in the court, but I do believe the logical extension of the Trump v. Vance case, um, which was not controversial, even for the Republicans on the court, um, is that, our precedent suggests that a sitting president can be deposed, can be investigated, could be stopped if he went on a shooting spree on Fifth Avenue. 
contrary to what Donald Trump's lawyers said. And in this case, they said, and guess what? He doesn't get to block his old accounting firm, Mazars, from complying with a subpoena to turn over his tax returns and other financial documents. You and I have been in courts of law and you can argue any point. And unless it's spelled out dramatically, bluntly, you will argue that logically that it would, you could conclude that he could be indicted if you're able to investigate him. But you and I both know that there's going to be a well-paid lawyer, I'm not going to say smart because they can be well-paid and not, who will uh, argue that that doesn't mean anything. You can investigate him for for something and then charge him later. And then after he's out of office, it doesn't matter because he's gone. So, I mean, I I think it needs to be not only rejected, but a new memo has to be written saying you can. Wouldn't that- Well, and again, I think Congress could legislate here. Yeah, right. I so they that. could Absolutely. they could overrule those memos by yeah. legislating, but more importantly, I think Merrick Garland, as with other OLC memos like the torture memos that we talked about before, Merrick Garland can just rescind those memos. Yeah, and uh, say we're going to produce new guidance on this. It, right, and it would still leave it up to interpretation. I I think the only thing you can do is to uh, legislate a, a definitive way out of it. I mean, and. But, you know, you brought up another point that just it floored me every time I heard the the argument, the logical argument that you couldn't stop him, you know, if he shot a man in the street on Fifth Avenue. I, I Being a literal minded human being, I wondered if that meant that if you confronted Donald Trump as he's shooting people and you're a cop, that you would not be able to defend yourself or the public. You must let him continue his shooting spree. That was the argument that they made. And guess what? Thank I know. God, the court did not buy it. The Supreme Court did not buy it. Even <laughs> the furthest right wing justices on the court did not buy it. Um, but the fact that they could make that argument shows how far we have come down the primrose path of exaggerated presidential authority and claiming Article Two as a foundation for that, where even the lawyers in the Office of Legal Counsel didn't argue that a sitting president can't be indicted on Article Two grounds. They didn't right. make that argument. It was not a constitutional matter. So I think there's far too much confusion around this that needs to be clarified. Now, Brian, one problem is that no president wants to limit his own authority, right? And so no president ever has the incentive to say, well, let's put out a memo saying a sitting president can be indicted. <laughs> you know, what fun. Uh, I'm now a sitting president. That. I don't want to put that out. So, so that's the problem. It takes a lot of character and a lot of foresight, a lot of willingness to look down the road to say, we got to prepare for what may come in, in 2024 or 2028. It takes intestinal fortitude. It'd be nice to see if someone in office had it. So <laughs> with that, <laughs> well, I look, I appreciate you being here. It was very, very enlightening, very good conversation. I appreciate it very much. I hope I can have you back sometime. Would uh, love to, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you. Uh, and the name of the show is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Once again, thanks for joining us and we'll catch you next time.